Let us turn to the New Testament, to Paul's letter to the Philippians, and chapter 2 for our text this morning. Philippians chapter 2, we'll begin reading at the first verse. Philippians chapter 2 at verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Amen. We are going to look at verses 5 to 8 this morning in our continual study of the book of Philippians. The last time we looked at Philippians, we did notice verses 1 to 4, and there surely Paul was impressing upon the Philippians the need to be united, oneness and lowliness and helpfulness. This is what should characterize uh, the Christians in Philippi. And we would say, obviously, because the Word of God is living and active, it is relevant to every one of us today if we profess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, I would expect that verse 3 is really the, the principal verse in this chapter. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. And surely this is what the apostle is impressing upon the Gentile Christians in Philippi, that they are to have a, a oneness, one with another, that they are to live in lowliness of mind, and they're not to think too highly of themselves. That doesn't mean to say they're not to think about themselves at all. Of course not. But they are to look upon things soberly. And they are to be ones who help one another. Now we're going to look at the verses that follow. And what do we find here in verse 5? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what normally happens when... The, the apostle gives some instruction to them. He gives an illustration. And this is what we find here. Verse 5, 
Let this mind be in you. And uh, the first thing we want to notice then is really the illustration of Christ that he gives to encourage the people to take on board what he has said. Look, and what he's basically saying is, look, I'm going to put before you a glorious, wonderful, divine, perfect example of what I have said previously. He has given the instruction, and now he is illustrating it. And it's a wonderful illustration, as we will see. And what do we find here first? Well, we have the command. We have the command. Let this mind be in you. Let the mind of Christ be in you. And we would take it from this, friends, that this mind is to be in us continually. It's not just a one-off occasion. This attitude of mind is to characterize the Christian as he makes his way in his Christian pilgrimage, as he works out his Christian life and experience. This mind is to be adopted continually. It is always to be before the Christian. This command, let this mind be in you. Not a one-off experience, but a continual day-by-day, moment-by-moment experience that we are to have before us the wonderful divine example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not just for certain individuals within the congregation. We might look at that maybe in a few moments, but this is something that's to be adopted by every single person. This example is for every one of us because as we will know to our own experience, we're all inclined to think too highly of ourselves, some more than others. That is true, but nevertheless, this sin, this shortcoming, this failing is with us all. And therefore, we are to adopt this mindset, every single one of us. But also, does it not in some sense encourage us we have been looking at the church in Philippi, the church, the first Christian church in Europe to receive the gospel. And basically, as we go through this book, we'll find that there were one or two problems in that congregation. Not major problems, we might say, but nevertheless, there were problems in this good church, we can say, in Philippi. Therefore, we are to be reminded that no church, no congregation, no denomination, whatever, is perfect. We all have faults and failings. Is it not true that the Christian is a work in progress? We can enjoy the knowledge that our sins are forgiven. We can enjoy the knowledge that we have been adopted into the family of the living God and the many blessings that Jesus Christ has secured for us. But nevertheless, we're not perfect. And indeed, as we go through our Christian life, we recognize it more and more, far from it. And therefore, this is an encouragement to us. We're not perfect, but nevertheless, we are to adopt this mindset. 
Let this mind be in you. Let this mind be in everyone that belongs to Partick. Let this mind be in everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that this glorious example is before us. And it is to stimulate us to think highly of others and not to think so much of ourselves. Well, the command, what else? Which was also found in Christ Jesus. Now he's coming to the very root and the sum and the substance of what he wants to say. The example is provided for us by Jesus Christ himself. Now we're going to look at this principally from verses 6 to 8. And in my reading for the sermon this morning, one or two commentators have said that this section is an early Christian hymn. That's what they say. And they, they go to other parts of the, the New Testament also, and they say that, well, they are parts of an early Christian hymn. And basically they say this because they would not accept our position that God has given us a hymn book, and that hymn book is to be found in the book of Psalms. Well, we're not inclined to believe that this was an early Christian hymn. It's certainly written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit, but we're not inclined to think that this is an advert for hymnology. Now, as is common, once he gives an exhortation, he also gives an example, and it's a glorious example. And what we have before us here in these three verses, from verse 6 to 8, we have a profound, deeply theological statement about the Savior. And I would put it to you right at the beginning. This is deeply theological. We'll never be able to plumb the depths of this statement here. We may be highly trained theologians, and yes, we might have a, a greater understanding than others concerning these verses here. But everyone who truly looks at these verses will have to hold their hands up and say that we can never plumb the depths of these things here. Nevertheless, we will not hide. Nevertheless, we believe it's profitable to meditate upon these things, and what we cannot understand or grasp will cause us to bow before him and worship him and to acknowledge the glory and the wonder of the God-man, of the Lord Jesus Christ, of our mediator and of the Savior who has come down from heaven in order to save his people. Now, what we find here is consistent with other parts of the Scriptures. We could think, for instance, of John. John's Gospel, John chapter 1, begins in verse 1, talking about the Savior. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Another profound statement said in a few words, 
Yet there is no theological brain that can plumb the depths of that statement either. We could also go to the book of Hebrews. Paul, when he was writing to the Hebrews, how does he begin? Well, part of the opening of chapter 1, in verses 2 and 3, he's talking about the Savior. What does he say? Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Again, something, friends, that we haven't got the capacity to fully grasp and understand. But by faith, we can believe these things, these things that have been revealed to us, and they may feed our faith and cause us to delight and to glory in this person and in what he has achieved for his people. The wonder and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it goes on. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Well, that's the example that's set before us. What an example it is. It's an example in suffering. That's why we read, or part of the reason why we read from Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. There we have, in these verses that we read in the Old Testament, we have the suffering, but we also have the exaltation of the servant of God, the Messiah, whom we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we find in these verses is a tremendous and a wonderful example of the suffering willingly and voluntarily undertaken by the Son of God, by the second person in the Trinity who took upon himself our form and our nature, and became just like us, sin only accepted. And therefore, his sufferings are to be an example for us. Now, of course, we cannot in any sense suffer in the way that he suffered. He suffered vicariously. What does that mean? Well, he suffered on behalf of others. He was our substitute. Now, our sufferings cannot be vicarious. We don't suffer for others. But nevertheless, his example for us is an example to follow, that we recognize that we will suffer, not like, of course, Jesus Christ, the way that he suffered, but it's part of a Christian life and experience that we will suffer if we're truly Christians. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, touches on this. Peter was talking to, or writing to those who were about to endure persecution, who had endured it, and were going to experience more persecution. Why were they persecuted? Well, they were being persecuted simply because 
They were Christians. And Peter is writing to them to encourage them. And he says in 1 Peter 2, verse 21, For even hereunto were ye called. It's part of our calling to suffer, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. We are to walk in the footsteps of the Savior. His life was a life of suffering. As he got nearer the cross, his sufferings extended and grew and multiplied. Can you imagine what it was like for the Son of God to have someone spit upon his face? Do we not look upon that in our society as something that's absolutely horrible? Or someone to do something like that to another person? What was it like for the soldiers and for the church of the day to spit upon the face of the Son of God? That's what he endured. That was only a part of his sufferings. Even to live in this world, in this world that's dominated by sin, that in itself would have been sufferings for the Son of God. You might know something of this. To a very small measure, you might know something of this. I don't know the company you keep. I don't know the company that you have to keep. Some of you have to be in the world, and you're surrounded with people in the world. Maybe a workplace, maybe a place of study or whatever. And you hear all kinds of things being said. You hear lots of foul language. You hear much blasphemy. Well, if you're a sensitive Christian, if your conscience is tender, this will be an affront to you. This will be something that will cause you some kind of suffering. Not, of course, to the extent that Christ suffered, but you will be able to recognize it. It's all part of the calling. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us. Now, this is very often absent from modern-day Christianity. Very often, modern-day Christianity is all happiness. Now, in one sense, there's no one as happy as a true Christian. Don't get me wrong, there is joy, there is happiness in the Christian life. But on the other side, there's suffering, there's sorrow. That's the way it was for the Savior. There was no one as happy as the Savior. But there was no one who experienced sorrow like the Savior also. And John touches on this as well. And it's good for us to remind ourselves, this is part of what it is to be a Christian. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6, what does he say? He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. We are to follow his example. Walk as he walked. How did he treat persecution? What happened when he was reviled? He reviled not again. Oh, Christian, that's hard. It's not easy. 
But nevertheless, that's what's required of us. That's the example that has been set before us by the Savior. It's a perfect example. It's a divine example. And very often when we seek to follow in his steps, we will be disappointed with our behavior. Nevertheless, this is what we press on for. Be ye followers of me, Paul says. Why? Even as I also am of Christ. What a statement it is to say that here was the apostle telling the Corinthians, follow me. Why? Why are we to follow the apostle Paul? Because he is one who's closely following the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the glorious example that is set before us, which was also in Christ Jesus. Are we feeling the weight of this? Well, we should be feeling the weight of this. Who can truly follow them? the example and suffering set by the Savior? It's not exactly the same context, I know, but look at the, look at the example that the Savior set when he washed the feet of the disciples. Something that they should have done for him, but none of them did it. And the Savior took a towel and humbled himself and went and washed the feet of all the disciples. What an example that has been set before us. Again, it's not in the context of suffering, but it is in the context of humiliation that he was prepared to do that. Do we ever consider anyone else? Do we not live in a day when it's me, 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 and only me? Is that not what we see in the world? Well, that's not what we are to see in the church. That's not what we are to see from the Christians. We must have an eye, we must have a mind for others. Not neglecting ourselves, of course. No one's saying this. What did the Lord Jesus say? You're to love your neighbor as yourself. You obviously have to be concerned about yourself, but you are also to be concerned for others. And the glorious example is before us here, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, he goes on. He goes on to talk about the humiliation of Christ. What does it say here? Verse 8, for instance, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Very often people are humbled by embarrassment. We could think of maybe those in the public life, politicians, for instance. We're not picking on politicians, but it's a good illustration for us. There they are, they have high profile lives. There they are, they're legislating for people and they're telling people how they are to live their lives. And very often it comes to light that the politicians who have been legislating have not obeyed their own legislation and they have fallen from grace. And what happens? They are embarrassed, but they are embarrassed and brought low and humble only because they have been found out. This cannot be said about the Lord Jesus. This cannot be said about the Son of God who became the Son of Man. No, 
What we're meant to realize is he humbled himself. He took it upon himself to undertake all that was required. No one twisted his arm. Oh yes, we know that God sent him, God the Father that is, sent him on a mission, on a divine mercy mission. But we are made to understand here that Jesus Christ went willingly and voluntarily. It delighted him. It delighted him. We might put it personally, friends. It delighted the Savior to go to the cross to save you. Oh, does that not humble you? Does that not humble the minister to think that in some real sense, this infinite person, the Son of God who became the Son of Man, had in some sense, when he went to the cross, when he endured all that, he had you in his mind? That the Son of God was prepared to do this? Who are you? If you're honest, what are you? By nature, a hell-deserving sinner. That's what you were. A child of wrath, dead in trespasses and sins, a God-hater. Yet the Son of God left the glories of, of that world that we shall soon know about. And he came to this world and all the humiliation that came upon him, he willingly took it in order to save you. No wonder then we were able to cry out when we read that, when we sing that psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Oh, we sing that with gusto. Do we not sing it with enthusiasm? Do we not sing it because it personally applies to the Christian? The Lord is my shepherd, and what a shepherd he is. Well, he didn't do it because he was embarrassed, forced embarrassment, being found out. No, 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 no. He did it because he wanted to do it. He did it because he knew he had to do it, and he wanted to do it in order to save who being in the form of God. Oh, here's where many people stumble. Is that not so? Here's where the cults stumble. Here's where the Muslims stumble. They'll look upon him as a good man, a good teacher, a good example. But no, that's not the Savior. That's not the Savior that saves. The Savior that saves is the Son of God. And when he is the Son of God, he is equal with God. Some will say, He was like God. They'll go so far as to say he was like God. That does not do the Savior justice. Why? Well, man was made in the image of God. Adam was made in the image of God. Man, in some sense, was like God. And therefore, Christ is more than simply like God. And others will say, well, here we have the Savior. Yes, he was the most God-conscious man that ever lived. 
that does not do him justice either. There were plenty of holy men, but Christ is way above them because he was God, God of very God, equal with God. And this is the Savior that we proclaim to you. And this is the Savior that you need, because only God can save. And that's why he became a God-man, God in all his glory, in all his beauty, in all his majesty. This is the one who came. And he took to himself a human nature and became just like us, sin only accepted. This indeed is a profound, profound mystery. But it's true. It's the Savior of the Bible. Thought it not robbery to be equal with God. What does that mean? Well, if a man was to say that he was God, that would be robbing the glory of God. That would be robbing the glory that's due unto God. But the Lord Jesus Christ did not think it was robbery to be equal with God. Why? Because he was equal with God. That's why. If someone was to say to us, well, I am God, is that not taking some glory away from God? Is that not robbing from God what rightfully belongs to him? But the Savior thought it not robbery to be equal with God, because he is God. The second person, God the Son. But this person made himself of no reputation. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. The people didn't recognize who he was. Here he was, born in a stable, born to poor parents, lived a life of poverty, learned a trade. Around 30 years old, he began his public ministry. He had no money, no home. Does he not say, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head? No possessions, nothing. Made himself of no reputation. Think of the religious leaders of the day. Did they look upon him as someone who had reputation, someone to honor? No. They rejected him. Think of Pilate. Think of Herod. Think of the rulers, the political rulers. Did they think highly of him? No. They did not. 
What about the people themselves? Did they think highly of him? Well, for some time they may have looked highly upon him, but towards the end they said, no, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. That's what they said. He made himself of no reputation. He did not in any sense divest himself of his divine attributes, but all of his divine attributes were veiled. When people looked upon the Lord Jesus, they did not see anything special about him. Nothing whatsoever. He didn't stand out from the crowd by his looks, by his appearance. On some occasions, he did show his glory. He showed it to his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. There, we would say he showed his second coming glory to Peter, James, and John. They were overwhelmed when they saw the transformation of the Son of God. But largely during his time upon the earth, his glory was veiled. It was there, but he did not display it so that he had no reputation. And took upon him the form of a servant. What humiliation we have here. We have said it before, and we need to say it again. Had the Son of God come down to this world as a prince or as a king, it would still be humiliation for him. But he didn't come as a prince. He didn't come as a king. He came as a servant. Do you see the condescension? Do you see the voluntary humiliation of the Son of God? He came down as a servant. He came down ultimately to serve his Father. I delight to do your will. This was what motivated him. We might say in modern language, this was his meat. This was his drink. In order to be obedient to the Father. But... His humiliation even went further than that, because although he came to serve the Father, yet he also served mankind. For the Son of Man has not come to be ministered unto, but to minister. The Son of God, serving the Father, serving mankind, he became a true servant. This is the mindset that is to be occupied with the Christian. He is to be a servant too. He is to consider others. This is the example that's before us. And was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself even further. It goes on, and became obedient unto death. And not only death, but the most despicable death known to mankind. It goes on, even the death of the cross. To be in the cross, friends, was a, a cursed death. No Roman would ever be crucified. The Jews would put the dead body of a criminal on the cross. They would do that. And that was considered to be a curse from God. 
But the Lord Jesus Christ went even further than that. He was a living individual, and he was crucified upon the cross and died upon the cross. It was the lowest of lowest deaths that the Lord Jesus Christ encountered. Can you see, can you grasp something of this humiliation? Well, my time's almost up. This was all undertaken willingly and voluntarily in order to save, in order to save sinners. Does this not cause us, therefore, to marvel? Does this not cause us, therefore, to crucify our pride and to see the wonder and the glory of the Son of God? And to understand, if we read the book of Philippians correctly, this profound statement was given primarily to instruct two women who had fallen out. Now it's obvious because Paul does not say what the reason is why they fell out. We'll come, we'll come to the names of them in chapter 4. But two women had fallen out in the congregation about something. And he gives this profound doctrinal statement urging upon them to follow this example to settle their differences in the light of this great person and what he's undertaken. It obviously wasn't a, a major issue. It wasn't a, a doctrinal difference because if it was, he would surely have told us that in the epistle. It was probably a personality clash. Somebody wanted to do something one way, and the other lady wanted to do it another way. And what happens in a congregation? People take sides. And where we have that kind of behavior, you cannot experience the fullness of joy that Paul would have them to experience. And he gives this, therefore, this example in order that in some way these ladies might come to their senses and put things into perspective and settle their differences. This is the great example that's before us. The example of Christ and his deep humiliation, putting others before himself. Amen. And may the Lord be pleased to bless his word to us. Let us pray together.